Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You're listening to Class Dismissed, episode 242, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. This episode, a popular course at Yale University which teaches teens about the science behind happiness, is available online for free. We'll share the details. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics in news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you may be able to apply in your community. Our guest this episode will give us some tips on how to foster a productive mindset in mathematics class. Everybody, Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by a friend, Chief Academic Officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed Podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am doing pretty good. How about you? Pretty good. I can't complain. I mean, uh, tell me about this time of year for you, being a director, or I, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to say director, being a well, Chief Academic Officer for, for It is district. being a director. It's just that it's many hats, and so that kind of gives me an umbrella title. Because one hat I inherited this year is I'm also district test coordinator now. Well, that's what I'm about to ask you about. (laughs) It's testing season. Um, Really, that window opened in February, starting with ACT. And it starts to get extremely insane next week. And so um, it's a tough time for me, to be honest. I mean, we could probably do a whole episode on this, but I'm going to ask you a question and see if you can impart some wisdom on us. What's a good tip for a district when it comes to test prep like what are what do you often see done wrong and and how do you like and what do you do that you feel like is right i think it's the key terms right there test prep um years back when you know we had a different type of assessment our standards were different we had strategies for test prep once we switched to common core and then of course where it's college and career readiness standards now i don't think test prep is an appropriate term i don't even think it's possible i think it's about providing Um, standards-based instruction the entire year and tracking your students through progress monitoring and determining um, if they're mastering that standard or not and making the the appropriate adjustments all along the way. That is the key. Gotcha. Well, that's great advice. And and we'll stop there. No, you know, silver bullet, no great little um, consumable workbook out there to help you get ready for the state test. Like, you know, there used to be a lot of different resources out there. No, it's all about the shift in instruction. I hear you. Well, that's good advice. And today I'm actually going to talk about uh, a little coursework that is not necessarily related to testing, but it does have a lot to do with stress, the stress that high school students are under. I saw this um, story. It came out of the Washington Post and I thought like people just need to know this is out there because it's too awesome. So um, you've got the most popular course at Yale, which is titled Psychology and the Good Life. It has been retooled into a free online six-week course for teenagers, and it uses TikTok-length videos to highlight common misconceptions about happiness and teach those kids about the behaviors, feelings, and thoughts that produce mental well-being. What are your thoughts on that? 
that's a lot to take in right then and there. Um, and it's funny that you bring that up because another just sidebar with that is the level of stress um, that teachers are taking in. Um, and the fact that everybody's talking about it now, I think is extremely important. And it's something that not just school leaders, but parents really need to pay attention to. Yeah, no doubt. So, I mean, we, we all know Yale's great school, right? And, and the professor yes. is Dr. Lori Santos. Uh, she is the professor of psychology and head of Silman College at Yale University. She also has a okay. podcast. Um, and I guess for me, it's like I was even interested, like, can I jump in and like learn mm-hmm. some of this stuff? But it's really about am I mentally prepared to dig into like a 12 our course that's online. But I think, you know, h- how could we get kids to actually do that? Because when you go through the syllabus and stuff, like it looks pretty cool uh, with what they're doing. There. I think you can just with one, your approach to it's always going to be about PR. What do they think of your program? What do they think of the professors? Um, what their end game is ultimately, you know, how self-driven they are. But then how are the professors making the connection and using some of the strategies that they want them to use? How are they using them on the students? Yeah. Cause it's, it's a two way street. Yeah. I hear you. And and so when you look at like kind of the breakdown of the syllabus, it's they'll kind of categorize it into week one, week two, week three, week four, uh-huh. so forth. But really it's like two hours to complete for each week is what they estimate. So like the first week they go into this whole idea of misconceptions about happiness and they'll kind of teach you what it means to be happy and why pursuing happiness uh-huh. is not like a pointless endeavor. And, and so you kind of dive into that. And then it's like a decision versus related to something tangible. Right, exactly. And then they kind of go into like biases that get, into the way of happiness. This would be week two or the second two hour block. And it explores why we get to use good and bad things in life and how we can deal with um, growing accustomed to things and making bad predictions about what we'll want from the, for the future. Can you imagine the depth of that discussion? No, I really can't. No. And it would be great. Yeah, it would. And and when you kind of look at it, it says like it's broken down into basically eight videos, which are total up to about 54 minutes. And then there's two readings and two quizzes, it looks like. So like, that's like the amount of work it takes. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, trying to understand the psychology of happiness is so important. And I wish it was something we were, you know, just naturally teaching in high school to our students. And maybe in some areas we are. Um, but I just felt like this is such a great tool. We've got to kind of, you know, just throw it out there, put the link out there. If somebody knows somebody who needs this or wants to do the coursework themselves, um, it's available. And I would say not just for high school. I think that we could probably adapt it down to middle school too. That seventh through ninth grade. Oh, critical ages right there. Yeah. I, I remember middle school being tough. And I know that if you ask my now 17 year old almost 18 year old what his toughest years were he he says it was middle school and i don't know if it's just like boys and they're brutal or what you know is happening there i think middle school is probably toughest for for everybody once they become an adult and and reflect on it because you're just so unsure about yourself and and where you belong what you want to do your interest um and at the same time you're going through all of this you know, crazy development and you sort of have to have out of body experiences just to get through middle school. And do you, do they still do the thing? Like I remember, um, the horribleness of being in, um, like PE class where, <laughs> like, where they would have like teams and then they would have team captains and like a kid would pick 
Like, you know, they would take turns picking who's going to be on their team. I don't think that's happening much anymore. I hope not. Cause oh, that was, that was brutal. That was so horrible. And I, I clearly remember like, you know, am I going to get picked? Am I not? And then, you know, usually I wasn't picked. I wasn't picked last. I wasn't picked first, you know, somewhere in the middle, but imagine standing there forever waiting. Right. Well, and it was one of the meanest things I ever heard. It was a, I probably was in ninth grade when this happened, but I remember there was one kid in our class. Um, and he was like standing up against a tree waiting to be picked. And, um, he was the last one to be picked. And the team captain said, I'll take the tree. And I thought that is like, so, like that, that kid probably will remember that for the rest of his life. And it's like just sober. Like that's how mean middle schoolers are. And, and it always kind of stuck with me, you know? I think over time though, it's evolved. That's a whole nother uh, podcast for us. If we wanted to talk about, you know, bullying and just right. even microaggressions. Yeah, no doubt. Well, okay. So, and they did give some stats like kind of tied to this course. They said, um, even before the pandemic, like in 2019, 44% of high school students reported persistent sadness or hopelessness with nearly 20% saying they had considered suicide, which blows my mind that like it would even be that high. But, um, you know, I guess I don't know what's, what's changed. I don't ever remember being that sad, I guess in high school, but maybe it, it is. I don't either, but maybe it just depends on, um, how much you focused on it or thought about it. I remember times of not feeling like I was a part or, you know, I was being left out or other people were getting more social invites, mm -hmm. um, you know, than I did. And, but I don't think I harped on it. I think also it just depends on your family environment. I had a ton of cousins, my goodness, there were so many of us that that's where a lot of my time was spent anyway with my cousins. Yeah, I hear you. Well, anyhow, I'm going to put the links for this uh, course. I think it's worth taking a look at uh, if you know somebody who needs it or even just wants to take it themselves. Again, it is through Yale University and it is titled The Psychology and the Good Life is one of the most popular courses there now available for free. I think if you want to like get a certificate, that's where they kind of get you. They'll be like, oh, pay us some money and then you get the certificate that goes along with it, but you can just take the work anyhow. I like it. I think I'm going to share it with our new teacher induction group. Awesome. Thanks so much, Christina. Are you ready for today's Thank bright you. idea? Oh yeah, bring it on. What if I told you that confidence is a major factor when it comes to learning math? Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment has studied ways to foster productive mindsets in mathematics classes. Sam Rhodes, along with his colleagues at Georgia Southern University, have narrowed in on five key ideas on growing confident math learners. Sam is an assistant professor of elementary math education, and he's going to walk us through those five key ideas today. Sam, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I love this whole idea that you guys have. And the reason why, because I've, I've some of what you're saying here, I've actually been able to practice. And I don't want to say I'm experimenting on my child, but it was in 2018, my little girl, she was three years old, right? And um, I, we had we did an interview on the show with um, Joe uh, Baller. She's a math professor. You may know her from Stanford University. And one thing that she said during that interview that stuck with me is she said that sometimes kids' confidence gets crushed because they tell themselves they're not a math person or their parents may say they're not a math person. So since my little girl was three and now she's almost eight, I've always told her she was a math person. And I think the results have been really good. She loves math. And I don't know if that's why. And I don't know if that's what you guys found from your research. But let's go ahead and kind of start with your list because I think that's the first thing on there is that everyone is a math person, right? Yeah, and a, lo a lot of uh, this work it really goes in alignment with what Joe Bowler says and what she recommends. Uh, and I think that 
this this idea is true for teachers as well as students. I think a lot of times we grow up and the experiences we have shape our perceptions of ourselves. And so every time we get an answer correct, we suddenly think that we are a math person, that we can thrive and flourish. But the moment that something is challenging, we begin to wonder. And those those ideas and that wondering kind of creeps in. We start to doubt ourselves and we see that struggle and what makes us want to give up and really wonder, yeah, maybe this is, this is not the subject for me. Uh, when in reality, a lot of times students have really creative thinking and they have really diverse thinking. And the more that we give them opportunities to recognize those really creative and diverse approaches, the more that they see that they are a math person, that their thinking is valued. And as they begin to value that thinking, then they begin to see how the subject is part of their life and isn't this kind of foreign entity where they kind of have to leave their sense of belonging at the door and then walk in and just mm-hmm. pretend in this um, classroom for about 45 minutes. And you'll have to forgive my excitement. I jumped right into your list. But I, actually, before we go any further, I want to kind of step back and say, like, how did you guys come up with this list? Like, what research were you examining or how did it all come about? It actually stems from uh, a few different projects that uh, my colleagues and I have going on. We have a few projects working in K-12 schools with students, specifically on mathematical problem solving. And we also do some work with pre-service teachers. And so a lot of it came about through conversations we were having through these various projects and just noticing some common themes. Some of the things that the students in the K-12 settings were struggling with were very similar to the things that our pre-service teachers were struggling with. Uh, And one of them was this uh, desire to kind of label themselves and to label others as math people or not math people, just as an example. And so when we started seeing these commonalities, we started realizing that the teachers and the students could benefit from this understanding that they as teachers are math people, but so are all of their students. And that flipping that perception changes the goal from trying to create labels to trying to find and celebrate the thinking that we each have. Okay, well, good. So so let's go ahead and, and jump in. We've kind of already talked a little bit about everyone being a math person. The next key that you guys have is everyone's on a math journey. What do you mean by that? So I think that one of the uh, really challenging things that we've had happen increasingly in our society is this idea that students are behind in learning and in education. And there's this idea that some, there's this linear pathway through learning. And at any given point in time, you can determine where students are in that journey and then label them based on where they should be. And so the analogy I give in the article is, you know, driving across the country as opposed to flying. Mm -hmm. Certainly flying is more efficient, but there's a lot of people who take road trips and they see and understand a lot of things about our country that people who are flying never really get a chance to see and understand. And the same is true with mathematics. Certainly a lot of the algorithms and the formal procedures are faster and more efficient But a lot of times you can do those without fully understanding a lot of the rich mathematics that undergirds them. And so I think that the problem is, is that when we have these labels of here's where you are and where you should be on that journey, and so therefore students are behind, that we lose sight of the fact that they might not be able to do things as efficiently as somebody else 
but they might have really rich thinking and perspectives that help everyone. And so when we start to celebrate that journey, everyone benefits because the students who have those um, really keen insights can share them and the people who have the efficient thinking can share them. And so we all benefit from that shared experiences rather than simply saying the people who are further ahead in that journey are clearly better students or better learners in some form or fashion. And I think that the pandemic and a lot of things like that have exacerbated this idea of learning loss and students being behind. And it really causes a, a lot of us to lose sight of the fact that these students do have really great thinking and ideas. We need to find them. We need to figure out where they are in the journey, celebrate that, and then help them continue that journey. I guess I'm kind of conflicted on some of the premise of what you said, though. So I want you to push back because it's like, yeah, I know there's that idea of the pandemic causing learning loss. But as as a, a guy who grew up in the late 90s uh, in high school, I, I watched my kids do math and it seems way harder and way more advanced than I ever did. I feel like math has come further along. I Yes. And I think that part of that is that we've shifted our perspective on what really matters in mathematics. Uh, when I grew up as well, the focus was on producing correct answers, memorizing algorithms, and doing them repetitively until you've mastered them. And what we've realized is that that doesn't often lead to deeper understandings of the mathematics. Uh, a good example from my own life is I never understood why one half divided by one quarter equaled two. All of the things I learned in school seemed to contradict that, like mm-hmm. the division makes things smaller, uh, that fractions are things that are less than one. And so I could never get my head around that idea. And so a lot of the mathematics that we're looking at now is really trying to shift that from saying, how can we get students to efficiently produce correct answers, which can be done in our society by computers mm-hmm. to how can we help students really conceptually understand the mathematics they're doing so they understand why one half divided by one quarter is equal to two it's interesting we just recorded uh, an episode about trying to embrace chat gpt and generative ai in the world of writing and essays it's like how do we go forward because in the only comparisons we could really make were like the calculator and graphing calculators and stuff it's almost like do i hear you right saying kind of throw some of the shortcuts out, learn the the actual way before you get into the shortcuts and the calculator and so forth? Yeah, it's it's really the understanding. Uh, I, you know, if I have to do division, I'm going to use my calculator. I'm going to write an Excel formula. I'm going to do things that are very efficient, will produce correct answers, you know, thousands of correct answers every second. I'm not going to do them all by hand. But what is important is for me to understand why I'm doing division and for me to understand what reasonable answers are so that if I do make mistakes, that I'm aware enough to know why that's a mistake and correct it. The concept and understanding the division of what's occurring is really fundamentally important to writing a lot of these codes and to doing those calculations correctly. The actual production of the correct answer, not that it doesn't matter, but we have a lot of tools that support us and we can and should embrace those in our society. All right, good stuff. So key number three is mistakes help us learn. What do you mean? So I think that mathematics should be taught and thought of a lot, like a lot of other things in our society and our life. Uh, Nobody expects somebody to go to a concert and then watch them play instruments and then be able to go home and master that instrument in the same way. 
Same with riding a bike. Nobody expects somebody to watch somebody ride a bike and then be given a bike and jump on and ride it flawlessly. Unfortunately, I think we have that perception in mathematics. We think that students should be able to do things perfectly without mistakes. And a lot of students in mathematics classrooms feel like they're on trial. And so every single time they make a mistake, they feel judged, they feel bad. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to the first part of they start to feel like they're not a math person because of those mistakes. In reality, every single time you fall when learning to ride a bike, you learn something about riding a bike. You know, maybe you lean too far one way or the other. Maybe you weren't pedaling fast enough. Whatever it is, those mistakes help us learn. And the same is true in mathematics. Every single mistake we make helps us better understand the math. And so as teachers, I think our job isn't to cause uh, make students feel guilty for making mistakes or have them avoid those mistakes, but for us to help find the correctness of the thinking in their thinking um, and help us create self-regulated learners who are able to determine that it's a mistake and then learn from that. And as you cited earlier with Jill Bowler, she's done some fascinating research on mistakes and really found that the students uh, help grow their intelligence the more that they make mistakes and that they learn sometimes more from mistakes than from just producing correct answers. You know, I watch movies and I've never actually come across anybody who has been like somebody that we see in the movies where you have these classrooms full of students and they're like have an entire chalkboard just full of math formulas and they're all trying to figure it out and so forth. I mean, do you ever come across those people in academia or you might be one of those people? I don't know. I, I mean, I learned when I learned uh, and majored in mathematics in college, I definitely had some classrooms that were like that. So I, I guess I guess my question leading to is all those people in those classrooms like who are really good at math, it's probably fair to assume that they make mistakes with that stuff, right? Like even the best math people. Absolutely. And if you research the history of mathematics, there's lots of times when people think they have proved things and then find out later they haven't, they've learned, a, they've made a mistake in there. Um, but all of those mistakes eventually lead to us extending our understandings of mathematics. The next key you have is um, everyone has rich knowledge bases and experiences, right? Yeah, and I share in the article a story of uh, my own son, and we take car trips all the time back to um, Virginia, where we're originally from, and it's an eight-hour trip, and as anyone with young kids can say, taking a trip that long with young kids is, uh, it's brutal, but along the way, my son loves to just ask us math problems, and we then ask him problems back, and it's one of the ways that he likes to just pass the time. Mm -hmm. And so we posed the problem to him of what is three times 23. And at the time he was, uh, I think it was about five or six years old. And so I didn't know if he could do it. And I assumed that if he did, he would have probably done three times two and three times three. But instead he sat there and said, well, I know that three quarters are 75 cents and that would be three times 25. Mm -hmm, so then I just need to take away three groups of two. And one of the really interesting things about that story is the fact that if you know my son, you know that he loves coins and money. He has probably five different piggy banks and loves everything about it. And so what he was doing was drawing on his interests and drawing on his experiences to make sense of something that he didn't fully understand mathematically. 
And so I think that that's one of the keys in teaching is that if we teach in ways that allow kids to make those connections and then to celebrate those connections, they develop a deeper understanding and appreciation of the mathematics. If instead we just teach my son formulas, then he doesn't necessarily see how that applies to his love of coins. He doesn't see how it applies to his life. And what we find uh, from research is that there's a lot of students who then begin to think that mathematics isn't useful. And they begin to raise their hand in class and ask things like, when will I ever use this in life? Um, Because they don't see that connection between their life experiences and the mathematics they're learning in the classroom. I absolutely love that story. And I also love that to to hear that other parents have kids who want them to quiz them on math because my little girl does the same thing to us to the point of exhaustion. We're like, oh, we've had a really long day. I can't think of any more math equations. I don't know if you get like that. You're this is your thing. But that's that's how we get. Oh, I, I think that a lot of times we pose them to him because we want them him to stop posing them to us. We're, <laughs> we're driving down the road and I'm you know trying to focus on driving and mentally computing how many feet there are in eight miles because that's what he asked me that's great that's good good story all right and your last key is mathematical thinking and any productive struggle is more important than the answer that sounds deep (laughs) yeah i think the goal there is uh getting back to what i was saying earlier the struggle is such an important part of everything we do and when i think about uh, the things in life that i'm proud of there's nothing that I'm really super proud of that I could do in five seconds. Um, and whether that's you know con- building things or fixing things in the house or things in my professional life, whatever it is, if it's something I can easily do, I'm not proud of it. Yeah. My sense of pride comes from things that I had to work hard at, things that I struggled, things that took a lot of effort. And I think that kids are the exact same way. And so a lot of times when I was in the classroom, one of the mistakes I made is I would often approach it as it's learning. It's easy if you follow these steps. But the goal isn't to make it easy because then the kids aren't proud of themselves. They don't have that sense of joy and that sense of pride because there was no struggle. It was just redoing exactly what I said. Uh, And I think that that really causes students to start to not love the subject because they're simply doing what we're telling them to do, not thinking, not struggling, not experiencing that joy that comes from that hard work and persistence. And I also think that that you can learn a lot from that thinking. Uh, as I noted earlier, one of the things I often tell my students is behind every incorrect answer is correct thinking. And our job as teachers is to find it. And so when we focus on an, an answer alone, we sometimes celebrate students who have a correct answer, but don't necessarily even understand the process they used. Sometimes they get a correct answer because they made mistakes that balanced each other out, um, or they you know, did something that works in one situation, but not others. Oftentimes, kids who get uh, incorrect answers, somewhere in there, they might have really brilliant thinking. And when we can unlock and find that thinking, we can build from it and help them develop deeper understandings of the mathematics but it also helps all students develop deeper understandings because their way might have been a really creative way. And then when the other students in the classroom who did it with an algorithm or some other approach, listen to it, a lot of times they all develop better understandings of the mathematics. And then that drives everyone to like further in their learning and thinking rather than again, it being something where we 
judge the student for getting it wrong and make them feel like they're not a math person. I had a, I had a student a few semesters ago and she wrote a journal for me uh, about her kind of journey in mathematics. And uh, after learning and dealing with a lot of these keys in my course, she wrote a journal and said, you know, I used to always think I was not a math person, but I really think that I could be one if I'm able to bring my creative thinking into the math classroom. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me because what she meant by that was she felt like her thinking and her way of looking at it, which was often different than others, wasn't valued. And she started to see that when it was valued, that maybe she was a math person after all, and maybe her um, future in mathematics could be really bright. And so I think that what all of these keys really tie together in this idea of really supporting students to believe in themselves, to value struggle, and to really prioritize conceptually understanding the mathematics and asking those rich questions of why does this work and how can I find other ways to do this as well? You're a professor of elementary math education, so you're working with future teachers on a daily basis, right? Yes, I am. So so why did you feel it was important to make this list? Do you feel like this wasn't something that maybe they came to your classroom with the innate thought about? Yeah, I don't think they do. And we're especially working with elementary teachers. Uh, many of them did not decide to become elementary teachers because they loved mathematics. That's a good point. Uh, m- many of them uh, had, you know, experiences with mathematics where they personally felt like they were not a math person. And I have, I start my class every semester with several activities that really interrogate their experiences. Uh, Things like having them draw who they think a math person is. Hmm. And a lot of them, you know, do exactly what research has shown. They draw older white males, uh, which isn't the population. A lot of times that um, starts to major in elementary education. Uh, They start to, uh, they also do an activity where we make them graph their math experiences over time in terms of positive or negative. And a lot of them have a lot of negative experiences. And I mean, I've had negative experiences myself. We all, we all have. And so a lot of this list was to help them reshape their perspective of what mathematics really is and who is, who is it for? Um, Because a lot of them come in thinking they, they are just really hopeful that they're never going to teach mathematics. And my hope is that a lot of them leave realizing that they are brilliant mathematical thinkers as well, and that they will be brilliant mathematical teachers. I love that. Again, um, you're listening to Sam Rhodes. He is an assistant professor of elementary math education at Georgia Southern University. The article that we've been discussing is actually published in the National Council of Teachers in Mathematics. We'll link that into the show notes. Sam, we really appreciate you joining us on the show. Are you ready for today's pop quiz? Uh, I'm ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject... Which subject should it be? And I'm really curious to hear your answer here. One subject. uh, I would say a subject that probably doesn't exist of questioning. (laughs) I'm going to make up a subject. Okay, that's fine, because you actually kind of just went into my next question, but maybe you can elaborate. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I, I don't think we're teaching students how to ask questions. And I think that... Uh, questions are the basis of all innovation in life and every innovation starts with a question. So I think that if we could teach students how to ask really productive questions, that they will be far better in terms of both learners, but also far better in terms of future um, employees. 
when you say that, do you mean you just want to teach kids and students to be more curious or like specifically a better way to ask questions, you know, just closed questions versus open questions? What do you mean by that? Uh, I think they go hand in hand. Um, I think some research has shown that students are asking fewer questions over the course of their K-12 education. Uh, And I think that we need to do a better job of like fostering that questioning and celebrating that questioning, but also in teaching them how to ask really productive questions and how to leverage different types of questions in different settings to ask questions that are likely to really push the bounds. Uh, And it's not that, you know, no question, like people often say things like every question's a good question. And that's true, but not every question's likely to give you the information you're looking for. Um, I mean, sometimes we spend hours on Google typing in different questions until we finally find the right one. Uh, and so I think that it's it's that thing of, it's, it goes hand in hand. We want them to ask and be celebrating that creative thinking and questioning. We also want to help them and ask questions in a very intentional way. All right. Our next pop quiz question is, what does every child deserve? I think every child deserves a classroom in which they feel valued, loved, and appreciated. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I think the challenge is balancing ideas that come at them from every direction. I think that whether when they're reading curriculum, when they're talking um, to other staff, when they're turning on the news, when they're reading textbooks, like everything sometimes seems to be telling them contradictory information. And so I think it's really challenging for them to sift through a lot of that. What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. I, I, I think every educator needs more time, both in teaching, but also just personal time. Time to learn, time to um, refresh and rejuvenate. I, I think that they all just need a Hermione Granger time turner. <laughs> That's great. Uh, which teacher changed your life? Uh, I had a, a few. Um, my 11th grade English teacher is probably the one that really shaped it the most. Uh, I always thought of myself as a math person and not as an English person. So I think that my, my first key to myself was everyone is an English person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she really uh, helped me believe in myself. She really worked with me and she helped me see the joy in um, English and language arts, which I had not seen. And so whenever uh, I think about my key one for mathematics, I remind myself of my experiences in ELA and I uh, cannot thank her enough for everything she did. All right. And that leads us to our next question, our last question. Which book have you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? I think that uh, I would recommend um, a book called A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger. And it's all about uh, the beauty in questioning. And I think it's, it is definitely one that shaped my perspective and that I would highly recommend to others. That's great. I have not heard that one. And I'm very curious myself now. I'm going to have to check that out. Um, Again, Sam Rhodes from uh, Georgia Southern University. We appreciate you taking the time to come on Class Dismissed. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a joy being here. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.